Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bradley Garrett will join us to discuss Bunker. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Grok's Science Show. Well, with the current pandemic, we've become even more aware of the weak points in our society, and some are even preparing for these mixed major threats. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Bradley Garrett. Dr. Garrett is an American-born social and cultural geographer and expert on exploration, urban politics, and subterranean space, and is currently a faculty member at the University of College Dublin. He's published over 50 academic articles and book chapters, and his most recent release is entitled Bunker, Building for the End Times. And uh, Dr. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, very interesting book you've written here, Bunker. Why you decided to write this book? Uh, well, I'm I'm a I'm a cultural geographer by trade, so I tend to focus on people's relationships to places, and I have a particular fascination in subterranean space and how people build relationships to underground infrastructure like sewers, electricity tunnels, even bunkers. <laughs> so, I kind of uh, started becoming fascinated with people who were building private spaces underground to weather potential crises that could unfold in the future. Of course, we're all heavily focused on the pandemic at the moment, but these preppers that I met were also interested in building for nuclear war, runaway artificial intelligence, an electromagnetic pulse that would wipe out electricity. Uh, they, They seem to have a range of apprehensions about where we're headed as a society. And I was fascinated in how space, the actual geography was being reshaped by their by their actions. So that's that's why I spent three years working with them to try and understand their worldview. Has the prepping movement grown in recent times or has it always been around in some fashion? It's always been around, but we can we can certainly look back to the Cold War as a as a moment when people started building much more ambitiously. And that goes back to the moment when the federal government essentially said to everyone, we cannot protect you from this existential threat, a threat that we, of course, created. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a conundrum. Uh, we're, we're just past the 75th anniversary of the first detonation of the Trinity device. And um, God, so much has happened in 75 years. And there are so many more threats now. But even then, you know, there were a mass exodus from cities, people moving into the suburbs and digging up their backyards to build private shelters to protect themselves and their families. We're seeing a similar thing happen right now. Uh, people are talking about COVID flight. People are worried about living in densely packed urbanized areas and are moving into the suburbs and often or into rural areas. And often what they do when they get there is they shore up their supplies. We're coming again to a moment of understanding the fragility of the world that we've built and having to come to grips with all of the threats we face, probably, you know, climate change being 
first and foremost. A lot of people are thinking about how to build for that future, which looks a bit dystopian. Certainly with the threat of the bomb and, and nuclear weapons, that was perhaps a little bit more of a present. Uh, the threat of nuclear war was a possibility. And one wonders if this was also from people pushing the idea of needing a bunker and promoting the idea of a threat that you needed this bunker. There's always an aspect of salesmanship in, in some of these issues that we confront. In my book, there are people that are making quite a lot of money selling bunkers, selling freeze-dried food, essentially selling the, the antidote to people's collective fears. And I call those people in the book the dread merchants. It's in their interest to make sure that people are afraid and to kind of multiply our awareness of threats because that drives their sales. And I guess this is one of the unfortunate ironies of prepping is that it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if everyone thinks that the world is going downhill and you see your neighbors building a bunker, then you think you need a bunker. There have been a lot of studies about gated communities that are another kind of bunkered space, that the people who live in those communities are far more suspicious of their neighbors. That could be part in part because when you see the fences, when you see the guards, you make an assumption that there's da there are dangerous things happening outside of those gates. And that assumption may not necessarily correlate with reality, but um, it does have very real consequences in terms of our, um, the way that we live our, our lives and the way that we shape the spaces around us. Is there any particular trait or thread you see among these individuals, or is there a certain type of person who really wants to build a bunker? I was surprised by how diverse the community was, actually, in terms of social, political, and, and religious leanings. It was a hugely diverse group of people. But they all did share collective sense that we as a species are approaching or perhaps in the midst of a crucial moment, a moment of reckoning. Uh, we have uh, created so many threats that could daisy chain into other problems. And what was interesting about the preppers is that they would see themselves as having a realistic outlook on the threats that we face. And so the bunkers that they were building, they all saw as hopeful spaces which surprised me. I questioned one of the preppers on this point, and they told me, well, if I didn't believe that there was going to be a future, there wouldn't be any reason to prep, right? So you have to have some faith that there's a future to build for. And I did meet other people who weren't building for specific things, like they wouldn't build for nuclear war, for instance, because they just wouldn't want to survive under those circumstances. So everyone was driven by different sets. They had different motivating factors, and that affected how they built. But they all shared a hope in the future. Did any of those stick out in your mind? Uh, there was one bunker that I just was not prepared for. There's a guy called Larry Hall in Kansas purchased an Atlas F missile silo from the United States government. This is at one point would have had a nuclear tipped ICBM inside of it. And obviously the missile's been removed and Larry bought the silo for $300,000 and then spent $10 million turning it into a subterranean condo complex. So he's built 15 stories inside of it and he sells half floor condos for $1.5 and full floor condos for $3 million. And he's got 57 individuals living inside there. Obviously he held one of the condos back for himself. He's a, he's a true believer he told me that because of the technology that's available to us, reverse osmosis, water systems, volcanic ash scrubbers, 
nuclear, biological, and chemical air filters. He said technically building a space that people can live in for five years was no problem at all. So the difficult thing is engineering the kind of social environment and psychological environment that would keep people alive. So he had included in the bunker a cinema, a pool with a waterfall, a rock climbing wall, a pet park where people could walk their dogs. It felt like a like a tiny city. He even had lights in there that, that would mirror the circadian rhythm to keep people feeling that things were as normal as possible. He told me that when when the event happened and everyone came back to the bunker and he locked the blast door, he wanted to retain as much of a sense of normalcy as possible. And he assured me that they would be able to weather five years inside that bunker. The way you describe it, it almost sounds like a vacation destination. Well, I, I, and, and it shocked me. I had seen photos of it, um, but you really, you're not prepared <laughs> to see a pool inside a missile silo in, until you're standing in front of it. It was a, an exceptional space, and I can, I can tell you from my personal experience, I would have had absolutely no problem locking myself in there for three months to finish my book. There's so many potential undermine our society. One almost might seem powerless in such a situation, and this just gives an opportunity of doing something. Yeah, that, that's. I think that's exactly right. Many of the people that I spoke to felt a distinct sense of alienation. They're overworked, they're overtired, they're underpaid, they're frustrated, and they feel like all of the crucial decisions that are being made about our very existence are out of their hands. A single individual can't do anything about nuclear disarmament or climate change, we can't stop Silicon Valley from developing technology that could be disastrous or automating jobs. So many things are out of our hands now. Building for those eventualities is something that people can do. And doing that concrete work gave people a sense of peace. Um, There's definitely an aspect of control there. (laughs) People want a little bit of control over their lives. And another lesson that was really driven home by the pandemic, I think a lot of us felt and still feel a sense of deep frustration that we can't do anything about this, right? And, you, and we just end up sort of coasting through it. And so people make those concrete decisions to, you know, maybe quit their jobs or really focus their priorities on their family or their personal health. These are activities that give people a sense of agency again. And so when I, when I met these bunker builders, I, I guess I expected them to be conservative and paranoid and I had a a whole set of assumptions as I went into the project about who they were going to be. And actually what I found is that they were sincerely frustrated and scared. And this is their way of coping and and regaining some control over their lives. And that's something that I think we can all identify with in the current moment. If this also provides a sense of community among those people involved, talk about PrepperCon. There's a, a convention for this opportunity for people to connect with one another and work through their concerns. The PrepperCon was incredible. There were tens of thousands of people there and found people doing classes on identifying wild plants to eat, all the way to people developing apps so that you could find you know, like-minded community members around you to build defensible space with. I think a desire for community is a, is a big part of what prepping is about. And that's another misconception. You know, when people imagine prepping, I think they imagine it being, uh, often imagine it being individualistic, selfish, uh, that it's about protecting you and your family. And actually, that's not what I found. I found 
that most of the places I visited, people were building communities, communities with dozens or even hundreds of people. And they were sharing information. They were cultivating complementary skills. In thinking about planning for a disaster, they would have these conversations. Well, someone's going to need to know how to do the plumbing. Someone's going to need to learn how to do electrical wiring. And then people would go and take classes and learn those skills so that when the time came, they could contribute those skills to the community. Uh, It was surprising to me, I mean, that people were so sincere about trying to build a new kind of community and a community that they could depend on. But I think the drive to do that is heightened by the fact that people feel that they can depend less and less on the state to provide any of those functions. We've spent a long time hacking at the social safety nets here in the United States, and and, I think a lot of people feel, at this point, abandoned by the government. So they're taking it upon themselves to create a new society where they can depend on their neighbors and each other to get through things. talk a lot about the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Prepping is actually part of the religion, and being prepared for the end times is something that they have to do. Yeah, the Church of Latter-day Saints... um, have to be the most prepared group of people that I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, they're they're often told to have three months of food stored in, in case of calamity. And again, that's not about um, taking care of themselves with those food stores. It's so that in a disaster, everyone in the community can chip in to get everyone through. Uh, they've got phone tree systems. They've got various network systems of networking that would enable them to, to make it through something. And of course, they also have an ulterior motive that they want to convert people to their religion. And so a lot of their foreign aid programs are about going into disasters and donating both time and materials. And that brings people to the church. But I think in terms of practical lessons, there's a lot that can be learned from groups like that. They've built a lot of resiliency into their community. And I think that that's something that a lot of us have lost in the past couple of decades, and maybe something that we're coming back to in the face of this disaster. Having met all these people, has it changed your view on it? Are you going to get ready to prep? (laughs) Well, yes, I've started prepping on a kind of, I call it practical prepping. You know, I'm just doing everyday things to make sure that that I've got a, a little bit of a buffer built into my life. It's a bit like an insurance policy. You know, it just gives you some peace of mind to know that you've got a little bit of food and water. And but I'll tell you one small thing I started doing. I, I, I go camping a lot. Me and my partner, Amanda, are often out hiking and camping. And I just started keeping the, the camping gear packed and in the car. The thinking being, I mean, unpacking that and putting it away in a closet or stuffing under the bed or whatever is kind of pointless. If we keep it in the car... If something were to happen, we live in the mountains, if there were to be a forest fire, for instance, we can jump in the car and we've got our tent and sleeping bags and a couple of days of food um, in the car at all times. And that's, it's not an imposition. I'm not really going out of my way <laughs> to prep. It's just a small change in mindset that uh, could potentially prove helpful. Maybe to close that, would you recommend that other people start thinking about this? How do you think uh, people should approach this idea of prepping? Everyone should be thinking about this. You know, we... The vast majority of the world's population lives in cities now. And I've, I've lived in cities for the past 15 years in Los Angeles and London and Sydney, working for various universities. And in all of those places, I've, I've lived in extremely cramped conditions where I'm wholly dependent upon urban infrastructure to keep me going. And 
I've begun to rethink that, whether that's the best way to live. And that's, it's not wholly about my own ability to survive. It's also about taking some strain off of these systems. In the context of the pandemic, for instance, every time we go to the grocery store, every time we order food, every time we interact with someone, we have the, there's the potential there of spreading this thing, of infecting other people. If you have some supplies built up or you take yourself out of that very fragile web that keeps everything going, you release some strain on that system. We can actually think of prepping as being somewhat altruistic, like it's something that's for the collective good, not necessarily about protecting ourselves. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Bradley Garrett. He is the author of the new book, Bunker, Building for the End Times. And Dr. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, was, I really enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.
Thank you.